Well, if you would this morning, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, chapter 4, today we do begin a new series in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Um, the Ark of God is mentioned some 35 times in chapters 4 through 7 um, of this book. So, fittingly, we're going to call this series The Ark of the Covenant. Um, now, in light of the overall content of the book, though, we need to understand that what we're really reading is the fulfillment of God's prophecy that we've seen on at least two occasions in the first few chapters. Uh, the, uh, a prophet appeared to Eli in chapter 2, um, and then um, God shows up to Samuel um, in chapter 3. Um, the messages in each instance was the same. Uh, judgment is about to fall on Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and subsequently, I think we would argue, the nation of Israel itself. Um, it's all very, very ugly. But we also have to keep in mind that God is actually removing failed spiritual leadership so that he could place Samuel in his rightful place. And that is really an act of mercy. Um, Israel needs Samuel. Um, and so it's kind of a reminder in the big picture that even discipline in our lives, although sometimes it may result from sin, um, and um, we're going to experience judgment um, to instruct us, but even when we're tested, even when there is some sort of discipline, I believe God's purpose, certainly with believers, is to move us um, toward revival or correction uh, or something beautiful. It's not just done to be punitive, okay? And so we need to keep that in mind, and I think this text illustrates that. But um, we'd best begin just by reading our text, if you would. Um, stand with me out of reverence, respect for the Word of God. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 11. 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. And the words of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us here today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened to us before, or happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very, very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, died. You may be seated. Now again, the ark is the centerpiece of this narrative, um, and I would venture a guess as to why I believe Israel's treatment of the ark of God in this text really pictures 
uh, their relationship with God at this point in their history. Um, now, there's a lot of lessons here for us as well that I think are very modern, very practical, um, and let's just kind of make our way through it and see what we see. We start again with the core of the narrative here that they're fighting the Philistines. Um, verses 1 and 2, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Uh, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, if you remember last week, I certainly believe the first portion of verse 1 uh, belongs with last week's text that we studied where it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's this reminder that God is establishing Samuel as prophet and as judge over the nations. Um, and now the Philistines arrive on the scene, but I think, again, we're to be reminded that this is God's way of getting Hopni and Phinehas judged and um, off the scene so that Samuel can certainly be in his proper place. Um, now, uh, this may seem kind of out of the blue. The Philistines suddenly arrive. Uh, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Um, but it shouldn't be if you're familiar with the context of this book and um, how it flows from the book of Judges. Um, in Judges chapters 13 through 16, the Philistines were constantly terrorizing Israel. Um, they serve as the nation's great enemy during the time period of Samson, which you probably remember. Um, history tells us that the Philistines migrated into the region um, around 12th century B.C. Um, from somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea area, um, likely from Phoenicia, Crete, um, somewhere in that region. Um, if you really want to go way back and you want your biblical genealogy, um, we're actually told that they're descended, um, both in the book of Genesis and the book of First Chronicles, that they're descendants of Noah's son, um, Ham. Uh, See, 1 Chronicles 1.11. Um, Egypt, who's the son of Ham, um, fathered Ludum, uh, Anamum, uh, Lahibum, Nefutum. Uh, I can't pronounce them right, so I'm not even trying. Um, Kalushum, though, from whom the Philistines came. You know, if you go far enough back, we're all related is really kind of the point, okay? Um, but you also see names that matter. There's a reason why Egypt and um, the Philistines and even the Palestinians and then the sons of Ishmael, we could get into all that. There's a reason why these peoples have been battling for generations, okay? But one way or the other, as we come to Judges and, and the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the Philistines sweep into Israel's south. Um, this text would indicate that they're moving northward into the region, or at least attempting to. Um, they're already in control of much of the, the southern region, which we would... Uh, call typically um, Judah. It's the tribe of Judah's ancestral land. Again, that southern portion of Israel. Um, the Philistines are actually the ones who named this region Palestine. So when you hear that name used today, um, it is okay to understand that that name has its roots in Philistine invaders of the promised land at this point in time. Okay, um, We're going to see some very familiar city names as we move into the series. Um, the Philistines developed five primary cities that had a corresponding king. Um, we see it first mentioned in Joshua 13.3. If you move down in there, um, there are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Um, and again, you're probably hearing those names. If you're hearing about what's happening in the Middle East right now, several of those city names are, are very prominent places.
places in what we would call modern Gaza or um, Palestine. Um, they come from the rulers of the Philistines in this time period, okay? Um, kind of what's old is new again, you might say. Uh, the fighting, um, not surprisingly, erupts in the region around Shiloh. Um, again, Aphek, a city mentioned here in this text, is just west of the hill country of Ephraim, which is the home of Samuel's parents. If you remember in chapter 1, um, we believe Ebenezer. Um, that city is about 20 miles west of Shiloh. Um, but geography aside, and I don't want to complicate things necessarily at this point, putting all that aside, it's the Israelites' failure in battle and the initial battle here which really sets the stage for the events involving the ark. The Philistines are invading, um, they're pressing, um, there's a battle, and 4,000 Israelites die, and, and that first engagement being lost um, kind of leads to the second portion of this, or plan B, and that's where we see uh, the fetching of the ark. Now, if you're like me, um, maybe you're not, but the word fetching is not like the word uh, it's, it's not a super flattering word for what they do with the ark here. And it's chosen intentionally because um, I, I want to sort of telegraph the tone I'm going to take for these, this whole series of events. Um, their, their view of the ark and their use of the ark is not really what God had intended. And, and I think we need to understand this overall, the tone um, of this period in Israel's history. Um, we saw it there in Judges 2.10. And all that generation also were um, gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That was the very beginning of the book of Judges, and it just got worse as the period increased until we come to the end of the book. Familiar passage to us by this point. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then you come to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli, the priests, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The nation and its spiritual leadership was apostate at this point. Um, they still had the trappings of the Mosaic Covenant. There were still uh, men and women in Israel who sought to worship Jehovah God rightly, but they were in the minority. Uh, the leadership of the nation had wandered far um, from Jehovah God, okay? And so, they, yes, they had uh, remnants of the covenant. They had the ark. They had the tabernacle still in place, but they had long since abandoned, in general, authentic worship of Jehovah, okay? Now quick overview of the ark hopefully you remember our study through the book of exodus where we broke it down um, in depth but um, let me just quickly refresh our memories about um, some particulars its contents are probably the most important thing inside the ark um, were the tablets of the covenant um, the rebuilt tablets you might say after moses broke the first set after israel's wickedness anyway um, the covenant tablets were in there there was a portion of the manna that god had provided for israel in the wilderness journey that was kept in there in a jar. Um, Aaron's rod that budded to designate him as the priest was in there. That should probably give you a little warning that these wicked priests are about to get what's coming to them. But anyway, um, that was in there as well. Um, these are essentially, you might say in the big picture, relics of God's faithfulness to Israel. Uh, that's what they stood for. That's what they represented. And, and they were in there. Um, without camping out on the ark's design or its materials, we know it was in general a rectangular box um, topped by twin cherubim. Um, those are hybrid figures with both animal and human characteristics. Um, and, and a point, those cherubim and the ark itself 
God had allowed a faint vestige of his glory um, to show up at times past and, and deal with Israel and to um, God had spoke to, um, to Moses out of that Shekinah glory at, at a period of time and so in Israel's past while the tabernacle was in use um, the glory of God in a sense veiled glory of God would show up there um, it was all kept behind the veil the holy place it was only seen by the high priest except for a few times in the nation's history um, when Moses had died and Joshua took leadership of the nation um, and Israel had actually entered and conquered the promised land the ark had been involved heavily um, when the nation crossed the Jordan River for the first time the ark had led the way and, and parted the waters um, when the nation um, had um, marched around the walls of Jericho if you remember the ark was featured prominently and then the walls fell and they won that battle in those instances the ark had taken on what you might call a military significance now it did didn't fire rockets or do anything like that don't misunderstand it, but it represented um, the glory of God and how God was with the people okay and that the Lord was fighting for Israel and so it's pretty easy to see um, or follow the logic employed here by the nation's elders um, in, in the wake of their defeat at the hands of the Philistines they lost a battle to um, ungodly invaders and so they react and so we follow their reasoning and when the people came to the camp uh, the elders of Israel said why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies now, I guess we should give credit where credit is due because we're getting ready to pick apart the nation of Israel here with some criticisms. Um, but at least they ask a wise question to begin with, okay? Um, uh, they say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But you may notice that they don't wait for an answer, okay? It's a good question, but they don't wait for any sort of answer. They just, they just move on. Now, they were wise enough uh, to know as God's people that the Philistines, um, wicked peoples, judged of God uh, for generations past, uh, um, they should not have been able to defeat Israel in battle at this point in time. Okay, If God was with them and he was blessing them, they should have been, in that sense, unbeatable. Uh, they, they knew about the exodus. They knew about the plagues. They knew about the parting of the Red Sea. They knew about the manna. They, they knew about the parting of the Jordan. They knew about the defeat of Jericho. They knew all that, okay? But apparently their knowledge was selective because they should have also known that there were some times in their nation's past when they did lose in battle to wicked peoples, you might say. Um, the spies brought back that trembling report in Numbers 13, and then the nation rallied after God pronounced judgment on them. They went out to battle, and they lost. Um, the battle of Achan in, or at Ai in Joshua 7, when Achan had stolen some things from a previous battle and kept them in his tent. I don't know if you remember any of that or not, but in both cases there was sin in the camp. And so they lost. They had been given a simple battle plan under the conditional covenant, um, the Mosaic covenant, you might say. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. Um, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Basically, simply put, if you're right with God and God is with you, it doesn't matter who you face, doesn't matter how big your enemies are, God's got it. But again, it was a conditional covenant. Meaning, if there was sin in the camp, if Israel wasn't right with God, at any point in time, he could turn off his power 
and they were going to be weak in, in, in battle, and they could be easily defeated. And so they asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before Phil the Philistines? And historically speaking, that was the right question. They should have been examining their hearts to see what was going on. Uh, if you go to Joshua 7, again, that, uh, the battle of Ai, um, God tells them what had happened. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And he goes on, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because I have devoted them for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. And don't be confused about this moment in time in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God's word, even outside of 1 Samuel, tells us that the nation was wicked and it was being judged as it battled the Philistines. Um, Psalm chapter 78, uh, verses 58 through 64, it's written about this time period. For they, Israel, provoked him to anger with their high places. They were worshiping false gods. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. This is where the tabernacle is at this point in time. Uh, delivered his power to captivity, that is the ark, which is going to fall into the hands of the Philistines. His glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword. 4,000 have already died. There's going to be more. Vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. That's Hopni and Phineas, and we're going to see that happen to them. And their widows made no lamentation. Okay, that's God's history of these events. In Jeremiah's day, God refers to this moment in Israel's history as a chilling warning of what he might do next to Israel if they did not repent. Um, Jeremiah 7, I don't have it on the, on the screen. Uh, it's a little longer, but it's so clear. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make false, false offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? <laughs> Sounds a lot like what they're doing here. Only to go on doing all these abominations has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go on now to my place that was in Shiloh. It's talking about these events where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. He's talking about this specific judgment. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. This stands as a cautionary tale of what God does when there's sin in Israel's camp. But Israel asked the question, why have we lost? But they never paused to think, well, what is the sin in the camp? No, instead, they move on to their plan B, and they, they bring out the Ark of the Covenant as if it's some sort of magic talisman, and they seem to believe that just bringing it out to battle will somehow lead them to success. But I, I believe theologian uh, Ronald Youngblood has hit the nail on the head when he says this, if God will defeat for his people, a thousand arks would not bring success. There's no power in the Ark. The power's in God. Okay. Now, Israel, though, they embrace the motto, desperate times call for desperate measures. But you've got to remember, church, that you can't put God in a box. 
We all long for the power of God in our lives. And there are people on TV and uh, folks who wield magic hankies. And uh, I don't want to go into all that. But you see people promise you this, that, or the other. And, and we do. We want victory. We want success. We want healing. But we've got to ask ourselves, do we really want those things or do we actually want God? See, God should be the deepest desire of our hearts. Israel had long since turned their back on authentic worship of God. They were simply dealing in the trappings of their faith at this point. They asked the right question, you know, why have we lost? But they don't slow down to listen for the answer. They just attempt to put God in a box and carry him out as a magic talisman in order to grant them success in battle. But let's take a step back from this moment in Israel's history and personalize this just a bit. Is not all religion, to be honest, or what our culture now would uh, probably call spirituality, is it not just human attempts to harness the power of God on our behalf, if we're being honest about it? That's 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, kind of sounds like culture today, uh, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of what? Godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Friends, very clearly, yes, Israel needed God's presence, but the ark didn't guarantee the presence of God. We, too, need the Lord's presence, but he's not a thing to be harnessed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our religious activity, our sanctuaries, our hymnals, our worship songs, our quiet times, our baptisms, our Lord's suppers, none of those things guarantee the presence of God in our lives. They're, they're religious activities, but true religion is not seen in outward symbols, be they New Age experiments with tarot cards and horoscopes and astrology or Baptist pews and pulpits. True religion is found in only one place, church, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, period, period. Uh, John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All those, some of those things I mentioned, like pews and pulpits and worship songs, they, they can help us, they can move us to worshiping the Father, but the truth is, in many cases, they actually become hindrances or stumbling blocks because we make them more important than the one we're supposed to worship. That's what Israel was doing with the ark. True religion begins with a personal relationship with God, and we have to understand that such a relationship is dependent on asking and rightly answering the question that Israel winds up avoiding in this text. If God is not with us, why? Well, why not? Friends, the answer is always the same. The answer is sin. If you're on the outside, if you're separated from a holy God, if you do not have a personal relationship with God, I can tell you why. It's because there's sin in the camp. There's an issue between you and a holy God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a cycle that occurs over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And that's still playing out here as we move into 1 Samuel. Um, rebellion, uh, there's sin. Then there's retribution where God judges that sin. And that retribution is meant to bring the people to repentance so that there can be Revival, And that same cycle should play out in our lives. It's pretty predictable. 
problem is we're living in a culture today that says sin is just fine. Live in your rebellion. Celebrate your rebellion. It's fine. But here's the reality. You cannot know God if that's your perspective. You will not have intimacy with a holy God if you think your sin is not a problem. We've all sinned and we've all rebelled against our holy God. And mercifully, or mercifully, I would argue, he has allowed us to taste the bitter fruits of our rebellion. And that discipline is actually meant to bring us to repentance and turn us from our sin. Jesus said it. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will always, all likewise perish. I would argue that 4,000 Israelites falling in battle was actually the mercy of God saying, you've got a problem, get it fixed. They ask the question, but they don't wait for the answer. We need to understand that the door to repentance is opened by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's paid for our sins. He's made salvation and redemption possible, but we need to personally confess our sins, turn from them in true repentance, allow Him to save us and redeem us. Friends, have you done this? Do you know Him? Or are you just like Israel in this text, seeking God's power without doing the actual necessary work to examine your heart before a holy God? God is not a magic talisman. He is a just, omnipotent, omniscient God who wants a personal relationship with us. Do you know him? But we'd best get back to our text. Now, not only does Israel fail to ask the right question, what sin is in the camp, but they compound their foolishness by empowering the wrong men to fetch their supposed magic talisman. Next, we see the rascals involved here. Um, verse 4, uh, So the people sent to Shiloh and, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, I could say so many things now about who these two men remind me of. I'm not going to do that. Um, this is not the kind of people you want leading your nation, okay? That's all I'm going to say. Uh, the ark uh, was a symbol of God's covenant with Israel. They were invoking God's promise to fight for them. But I, I don't think we need to revisit our, our study of Exodus to remember the conditional nature of the old covenant, okay? God had made it clear if Israel honored him, if they were a city set on a hill, if they kept the commandments, he would fight for them. But if not, there's no power in the tabernacle, there's no power in the ark, there's no power in the law, there's no power if God withdraws his presence. And it sure didn't matter that the priests of the day, Hopni and Phinehas, they, they thought this was a great idea. You understand the incredible arrogance and predictable doom that's descending on the nation as these two adulterers escort the ark out to battle? It's no different, by the way, than churches today ordaining practicing homosexuals to serve as their pastors. There will be no power or presence of God when we openly defy his word, period. And let me be honest, there's no guarantee that we'll be blessed by the presence of God because we're practicing ordination rightly. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But I can tell you this for certain, we can guarantee failure when we openly reject his word. No matter if we dress in religious robes or put on rainbow tassels or sprinkle every member of our church, if you pay people to tell you what you want to hear to justify your own sin and wickedness, well, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And just briefly for a moment, you might be able to emotionally fake what we think we see next, which is, Revival. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's kind of like a hog call when you're two and six, you know? I mean, 
It's cathartic, but it means nothing. Sorry, you know. The people shout because they assume that God has accompanied the ark and, and now he's with them. Hopney and Phineas strut out on the battlefield escorting their magic talisman and the people swell with religious pride and fervor. They trusted their methodology and their spirituality and they were confident in success. Yeah, sounds familiar in a bad way. Now let me ask you a question that our text never broaches, but I think we should be wise enough to ask at this point. Remember the first verse of chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. I believe we're supposed to be sitting around thinking, where's Samuel? I mean, they've, they've got a prophet of God who's dwelling among them who has been verified by God as he's grown up and, and, and he's done well. Um, verses 19 and 20, And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from east to west, north to south, they knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But where is he as all this happens? We certainly know with confidence that he didn't support this move we're going to see in next week's text that even old blind Eli knew this was a bad idea certainly Samuel was wise enough to know the same so we got to ask ourselves well, why didn't the nation consult him why didn't they ask him to cry out to God and, and find out what the Lord wanted them to do why did they turn to Hopney and Phineas rather than Samuel well, Jeremiah 4:22. for my people are foolish they know me not they're stupid children they have no understanding they're wise and doing evil, but how to do good they know not. When a people are reckless and, and wicked and bent on doing what they want to do, they won't slow down and consult the right people. They're going to be given priests and prophets and shepherds such as they desire. Ezekiel 34, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds, it goes, have not searched for my sheep and by shepherds in this context, I would argue the priest, but the shepherds have fed themselves. Remember, they were feeding on the offerings and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And we know what's coming for Hopney and Phineas. But they bring out the ark and Israel thinks that the battle has turned in their favor. But they've ignored the rightful prophet and their true shepherd. And for their own good, though, God is about to remove their wicked shepherds. Now, at this moment, we get a look at their enemies. We see the response from the Philistines. Verses 6 through 9. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp... The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now, it is interesting that the Philistines refer to Israel as Hebrews here. Um, I don't think it's an accident 
Um, it's a name for the nation that's drawn from Eber. Um, he's a son of Shem, son of Noah. It's kind of taking them all the way back to their ancestry. Um, but really, more importantly, and I think pointedly, it's an ethnic term that's distinct from any religio-political designations like we think of when we think of Israel or sons of Israel. It's their ethnicity apart from their relationship with God. It's a way of referring to them without considering their relationship with Jacob's God, to be blunt. And I think the reaction of the Philistines here kind of drives this point home. They don't see Israel as a religious people. They understand little about God or, or Israel or anything remotely like the truth that Israel was supposed to display about its relationship with Jehovah God. And I believe that's due both to the Philistines' heathen spirituality, but also Israel's own idolatry. Israel should have been known as a nation living in fidelity to the God of gods, but the Philistines, well, they seem to rightly believe that there's a, a number of gods at work in Israel. Look at verse 8. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the, the power of these mighty gods? What gods? Well, I would argue the gods that Israel's worshiping in the high places, Bel and the Ashtaroth and all these other things. It's not just Jehovah anymore in Israel. Goes on though, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, again, Israel's idolatry was so rampant that the Philistines were able to believe that there were multiple gods, but also notice verse 8, kind of the end there. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Anything strike you there? When did the plagues come? Well, the plagues came when they were trying to come out of bondage in Egypt, right? Plagues didn't come when they were in the wilderness. I'm just saying that the Philistines don't really seem to know their history particularly well. Um, and I don't think we can blame this error on Israel. They seem to have placed the plagues into the wrong time period, which really isn't plausible because why would there need to be plagues anyway y'all maybe you're following me and they've already come out of it anyway god is is using though these wicked philistines to discipline israel and call them back to repentance but don't misunderstand i'm not arguing that the philistines are worth our admiration they're they too are idolaters they're flying blind the true power of god now it's it's almost impossible not to fall into the weeds of modern history here um, and I don't want to do that long but you understand we're still examining this conflict today it, nothing has changed and I never want to be misunderstood as as Christian peoples we have an affinity for Israel because Israel was the children of God in the Old Testament um, in a sense, the, uh, the church today has a kinship. That they have a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, we could talk about all that. In general, Israel's worldview is that there's one God, the same God that we worship. Now, they're missing the Messiah. Don't anyone misunderstand? Israel needs to know Jesus, okay? But if, if you want to go to the Middle East, the only peoples you can sit down with and see the world from a similar perspective with the same, in general, morals, and it's the only democracy, by the way, in the entire Middle East, it's going to be Israel because Israel's religious and political arms are all founded upon similar principles as to us, as to Christianity. Here's the problem. The enemies of Israel, whether you want to admit it or not, are also your enemies, because these Philistines and then the Palestinians and those in Gaza in general, the militant Muslims, they would just like to kill all infidels, and that includes Israel and Christians. 
Okay, I'm not trying to start a culture war here. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just telling you the truth, okay? Now, here's the reality. The Christian perspective should be, well, I don't want to get complicated. In general, I'm going to always side with Israel because Israel's special to God and God's not done with them, okay? But hear me. Israel's not perfect. Israel makes mistakes. Israel has made plenty of mistakes. Israel needs Jesus. The, those in Palestine and in Gaza, um, they need Jesus. But I will tell you this, it's kind of hard to share the gospel with someone who's getting ready to blow you up, okay? So there's a, a limit to some of that. You've got to be cautious, okay? As Baptist peoples, we're going we're gonna to send relief efforts to Gaza. We're going to send it to Israel. We're going to minister to everybody because we want everyone to come to know Jesus. But if you think... You can solve the problems of the Middle East by brokering some new peace. You're not examining the facts of the matter that these battles have gone on for centuries. It's deeply rooted. It goes all the way back to here. I would even argue that the fact that Israel continues to be attacked almost nonstop, all the time, is a part of God and His mercy calling them to find Jesus. They need something bigger than themselves. They've lost a true view of God. I, and I know you're saying, that. what's that got to do with this text? Well, everything and nothing. You, I mean, it, it's the same old. God's using the Philistines to discipline his people that they might be revived. I still believe that's occurring. But anyway, let's get back to the text. Forgive me for that, but I know everyone, I don't know if you wanted that or not. So anyway, okay, well... I don't know if it helps, but anyway. Um, in this case, rather than invoking fear, uh, the presence of the ark simply inspires the Philistines to fight harder. Um, it should have been different. It should have been like this in Deuteronomy 11. No one should be able to stand against you. When Israel's right with God in the Old Testament, their enemies should flee before them. They should quake and run. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that sh you shall tread as he promised you. It's what Rahab said to the spies in Jericho. The whole city was afraid because they knew God was with Israel. They knew they were going to be judged. Philistines have no real fear here because God is not with Israel. Israel has failed to live up to its responsibilities before God, and now their magic talisman has no power. And just so that I'm not misunderstood, th there's no power in Israel right now. They're God's people. They're special to him. He still has an unfulfilled portion of his covenant with them. Don't get me wrong. But Israel is an apostate nation, if we're being honest about it right now today. But the Philistines are kind of unlightened, two-gendered sexist pigs by the woke mob today, too. You know, they say, take courage and be men. Oh, Phyllis, anyway, sorry, I'm getting way too sarcastic with this. Let's move on. Um, failure in battle, all right? Um, anyway, there's just blame all the way around. That's all I'm saying. Verses 10 through 11. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni, and Phinehas died. The Philistines stand, they fight like men, uh, but the Israelites fled. And it literally tells us every man to his home. That's a common uh, scriptural phrase telling us graphically that in the wake of the battle, the army of Israel abandoned the battlefield, um, disbanded, and they, they fled to their homes as best as they could to take care of their own families. They're completely whipped, and they knew it. Uh, the word here for slaughter, 
I don't think it's an accident. It's actually derived from the same Hebrew word for plagues that the Philistines used in verse 8 that we looked at. God has done to Israel what he had done to Egypt. It makes a point. Now, we do see two very significant judgments of God here um, that we don't want to miss. Ark is captured by the heathen Philistines, and the two priests, the sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, are killed. It's easy to recall at this point from the idea of the ark being in the hands of the Philistines. But let's seriously ask ourselves this question. I mean, it's been in the care of Hopni and Phinehas. Is it any worse off now? I mean, obviously, there are lots of lessons to be drawn from the conclusion of this battle. But again, I would just pose a question. Would you rather religious things to be under the care of people who are apostate and they don't know about God and they've rejected God? Or would you rather them be under the care of people who are charlatans, pretenders, playing off of spirituality to take care of themselves? Now, in the bigger picture of our ongoing series in 1 Samuel, we need to understand that Israel lost this battle because of the wickedness of Eli and his sons. Uh, Again, God is clearing the way um, for little Samuel's ministry to rise to fruition. And in that sense, this is a a gift to Israel. It it again begs the question why he wasn't consulted at this point in time, but he's not going to be ignored for a number of years after this, I'll tell you that. Now, if you want to see some more contemporary takeaways, and let me be brief, um, we will see as we move along um, that both the Israelites and the Philistines falsely assume that possessing the ark means possessing the power and blessing of God, a mistake we repeat um, when we believe our church attendance, our Bible reading, our prayers, our giving, you name it, um, can guarantee us the blessing and the presence of God in our lives. God will not be used or manipulated into enabling sinful people to achieve their own selfish purposes. And you cannot depend on the promises of God while paying no regard to His demands, period. Salvation is a gift, certainly, but it should result in a sincere relationship with God. Authentic lordship is the desired result of authentic salvation. Um, The Apostle Paul sets the goal rightly in the New Testament, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. There's great power in knowing the Lord, but it's not that we might win all of our battles or always get what we want. It's that we might know him and bring him glory, even in a sin-sick world filled with battles and with Philistines. Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must never assume that God is on our side. But we do need to always ask, is there sin in the camp? I tell you this, our nation stopped asking that a long time ago. You want to know how we got the political parties we got? You want to know how we got the people we've got representing us? You want to know how that Israel got to where they are as a people? You want to know how uh, the Philistines, the Palestinians, you want to know the problem? The problem is there's sin in the camp and we won't address it. We can, as a church, fix all of that. But you know what we can do right here and right now? As our musicians come, you can deal with the sin in your heart. You can repent. You can confess. You can be granted a a, a new birth for the first time. But also, on an ongoing basis, church, we have to deal with the sin in our hearts. 
We have to admit that it is there, and we have to keep short accounts with the Holy God. And if we want God to show up and to, to lead us and to guide us and to use us, we can't look the other way with our sin. We can't bury it. We can't act like it doesn't exist. We can't act like it's not significant. We have to deal with it. So let's stand and let's respond to him this morning.